Welcome to Zencat Creatives Podcast. I'm Vanden. And I'm Tanya. We are the owners of Zencat Creatives, LLC. We believe that creativity is not just for the painter, musician, writer, or actor. Everyone has the ability to experience and grow their creativity. We interview people from all walks of life to explore how they use their creativity. Creativity is our birthright to interpret, share, and change the world around us. We're super excited to share today's episode with you, so let's get started. So, welcome to another episode of Zencat Creatives Podcast. Today, we have with us Tim Warfield, financial mortgage advisor, martial artist, singer, and writer. How are you doing today, Tim? Hey, I'm doing fine. Thanks for being with us. (laughs) And it's worth mentioning, we are also, this is another one of our podcasts recorded during the COVID pandemic lockdown quarantine, so (laughs) we may end up, uh, you know, just kind of put that out there, that's kind of the mood everybody's in, we're sort of locked down for a little while here. Yep. So we've been doing our podcast, instead of in person, we're doing it via Zoom, so we can see their face. (laughs) <laughs> not much to look at but hey i got it <laughs> well for us extroverts it's very important that we get to talk and see people because it's like yeah. starvation <laughs> so uh what would your definition of creativity be well there's so many different types of creativity you know um you have your artistic you got you know, like music and art and performance things. You got necessities like business and advertising, and uh, and you got survival, creativity. You know, since day one. But I, I think that really, when I think of creativity, is just not having a mold, but being able to kind of a flow and develop yourself and, and create yourself in different directions without any kind of, of technically set pattern regardless which one of those types of creativity you're doing. I think that, you know, you need some sort of a format, of course, if you're in a commercial line or advertising, because there's rules and regulations. But, you know, if you want to build a garden in your yard, you pretty much can do whatever you want. So it's more just, in my opinion, the idea of, of following some good guidelines, but letting your own inner feelings kind of paint the canvas. Hmm. Hmm good analogy yeah that's a good one that's Um, a good one so um so how would you say you've applied creativity to your work or life well you know you guys know me for a long time i got quite a variety of things i got to do in the course of the week from the business world where that's has its own type of creativity as as an example you know in mortgages and in banking and different things you you have to follow guidelines or you're breaking laws but within those guidelines you have to stand out from your competitors you know, wells fargo has to stand out from fulton bank and so on and so forth so they try to create their own little little ideas of creativity in order to get you to feel an emotion about their company one of the best creative things i've seen in lebanon county as an example uh was the uh the advertising that the credit union came out with, and it, they basically say, uh, we have our roots in Lebanon County, not just branches. And I really thought that was kind of, when oh, I see that, I thought, that, that is really good. You yeah. know, it's 
it says so many things in one statement, you know, and we have to do that all the time because in mortgages, you're in competition with other lenders, with other people. Um, there's, there's a lot of programs you have to learn, things you have to do in order to take a person from point A to point B, plus you're dealing with their personality. So your creativity has to lock into their personality. Otherwise, you won't get along and they'll move off to another lender. In the, in the martial arts, that's a whole different thing because that's not necessarily something that's commercial. It's more of a personal development type of thing where you, martial arts, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later, but you know, there, there's, there's cloning and then there's becoming your, your own individual within the martial art that you learn. That's the road that we travel in our studio, you know, and it's, it's, it's each different thing we do like music. Of course, when you're singing, you have to try to make the notes hit and, and you don't want to sound exactly like somebody else does. So you might, you know, if, if they're listening to a song on the radio for years, you might change something, but your creativity still has to adapt to something that they would like, or they'll just, you know, turn you off. So there's a lot of different things. Uh, as you said, when, when I came on, there's, I have a lot of different things I do on a regular basis, right. but they all revolve around creativity because I do not fit in well with conformity. Never have and probably won't. I, I think that a lot of people who are artistic and creative, they have a hard time fitting in that pattern mm. where you have to basically be like everybody else, you know, so. I would agree. <laughs> so, to, um, so let's go into a, a little bit deeper with the more sparks because the one thing that's probably strongest uh, in that's tied to your uh, your legacy, your name, it would be Warfield Marsh Works, which has been a part of Lebanon County for what's it been now? Thirty five years. Uh, a little over 30? 30, 30, 37, 38, Yeah, thirty seven, thirty eight. So, um, one of the most longest standing studios, and well, most studios can <laughs> say they've been around for thirty seven years to start with. Mm. So maybe let's just talk a little bit about your history with uh, like what got you into martial arts to start with. Well, when I was a small boy, you know, like fourth, fifth grade, um, let's put it this way. I, I came from a background with great parents and things like that. Nice neighborhood kids and things. And there was really no problems. But when you go from a school system where everybody in the neighborhood goes to that school and then you move into a junior high where now you have kids coming in from different schools that you don't know tends to be a pecking order gets established it's just the nature of things and you have your 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 kids who are athletes you have your kids who are very smart you have your kids who are uh, uh, creative and of course along with all the good things you have your assortment of bullies trying to establish themselves as the leader of the pack. And I wasn't a very big person in seventh and eighth grade. In fact, I was actually fairly small. So I went through a lot of bullying. And and, and uh, in some cases, it was really severe, not just myself, but a couple of us people that were smaller at the time. And um, so I kind of got into martial arts from that era. I, when I was going from eighth grade to ninth grade, I said to myself, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to put up with it next year. So when I go back to school, I got to do something. I can't keep on doing what way it's been. So it sounds kind of funny. I don't want to bore you to death, but 
I, I was a big fan of the wild, wild west, as you know. I mean, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet Robert Conrad before he passed, and uh, he was kind of like my hero. And so I took the summer between seventh grade and eighth grade, and I went in my attic, very hot, of course, in an attic in the, in the city of Lebanon. And I had a, a plastic chair with some plastic weights that my brother had, my older brother. And I lift weights, and he had his, uh, his duffel bag that he had from, the, from Nam. And I had it hanging there, and I stuffed it with stuff. And I'd practice punches and kicks and all these things that I'd see Robert Conrad do on TV. And I thought to myself, well, when I go back to school, the first person that says anything, because now we're going into high school, which is even a bigger amount of people. I thought, first guy who says anything to me, you know, I'm just going to unleash whatever I can because I, I was hearing from everybody else that if you do stick up for yourself, whether you win or lose, you win on two sides. You, you win as a person and start feeling better about yourself. And on the second thing, people don't want to mess with people who are going to give them problems and cause mm-hmm. issues for them. So that was my determination. I was scared. But believe it or not, the very first day, very first class, went to my homeroom. And of course, when you're in high school, like in, in the Lebanon area, it goes by the spelling of your last name. So you're pretty much in the, in the same homeroom that you were in seventh and eighth grade. Now you're there in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. So the bullies were all in my homeroom. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. Aww. Welcome to Lebanon High. And we left there, and the very first class we had was a science class. And we went in, and uh, I, you know, it wasn't assigned seating. You just sat down, and it was the very first class of the very first day. And uh, the one bully comes up, and he says, you're in my seat. And he was trying to impress the other kids and stuff. And grabbed me by the shoulder and said, get up. I said, no, I'm not getting up. He said, what? No, not. for two years, you picked on me. I never did anything. And I jumped up and I said, I'm not going anywhere. I said, you know, blah, 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 blah. Future choice words. You probably can't put on the air here. And uh, I hauled off from the very bottom of my toes. But I threw everything I had, a direct strike into this guy's face. I mean, I everything I humanly could put into that. And I hit him that hard that my, my legs shook and my hands shook. And, of course, my hands were shaking and my knees were going numb anyways. And he looked at me. And it didn't even phase me. And I thought, you've got to be kidding. A whole year or or a whole summer of training, it didn't even dent him. But then there was a Bunsen burner thing over there, the old gas thing. I ran (laughs) over, I grabbed that. I grabbed that and I said, I'm going to beat you with this. And, uh, you know, I freaked out. So science teacher comes in and takes us down to the office. And uh, Mr. Mr., uh, Bucky White was, was the vice principal. He says, you've got to be kidding me. School's not even 10 minutes in session, and I got issues already. And I told him right out in front of the other kid. I said, I'm not putting up what I did before, and uh, anybody does anything, I'm going to defend myself. And from that point on, nobody bothered me. And I decided that 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 was a good feeling, you know, that I stood up for myself. And I started weight training and doing all that through high school to, you know, develop myself to a point where I'd never have to go through that again. That's, cool. so that's kind of where we started. Robert Conrad, James West. <laughs> and then you got into boxing first before martial arts? Yeah, uh, Johnny Myers set up uh, a school up at Northeast. It was the Lebanon Boxing Club. And uh, it was John Myers and uh, a bunch of, of great guys that were there. He was basically my, my instructor. Uh, and uh, Dunes was there. And, and uh, 
there was just a lot of different guys that were there that we knew from the older generation that were in my neighborhood when I grew up. And so I got into, into the boxing first and I was, I was pretty good. And, um, that lasted about three years and I had a fight down in Reading and I was in the second round of the fight. And, uh, through a combination, I got in, a, in, in like a grappling thing with a guy in the ring, kind of holding on to each other. And next thing you know, I'm my feet are up in the air, and I'm being body slammed to the to the canvas. <laughs> and I said, and I'm like, what in the world was that? And I get up, and they're taking points away from this guy, and uh, it just came out of nowhere, and I had no defense against it. And we were when the fight was over, we went down and, and where we went afterwards. Actually, was it, the fight was actually in a big giant church in the basement was where the fighters went to weigh in and stuff. And afterwards I said to him, I said, what the hell did you do there? He says, ah, oh, it's just a move that I, I, I learned in Kung Fu. And I said, well, where do you do this at? He told me, and I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go check this out. And about two months later, I started, you know, going to Harrisburg to learn uh, Kung Fu. Oh. Yeah. So that's kind of how it all happened. And, uh, and I had busted my hand and, and so the boxing career ended. So, I kind of ended up just going to martial arts and did a whole lot, you know, of, of training in that aspect because I, in, in Lebanon, there was only one school at the time. And, uh, some of the bullies that I used to have to deal with were actually in that school. So I thought, well, I'm not going to go there. And uh, this guy was pretty impressive to me. So I thought, well, I'll go there. And I really liked it. I had a good time there for a couple of years. So that's kind of where it all, all started. Yeah. Um, but then that, that closed um, for different reasons. We left there, and uh, and I came back to Lebanon. And I, I and uh, it's kind of a funny story that we tell. But I, I didn't. I was already a boxer, and I was already a high-ranking martial artist. But I, I didn't want to drive to Harrisburg every day. That's when gas was close to five dollars a gallon. I had a Trans Am, so you can imagine what that cost. And. Uh, I had a, a, a leg injury, so it was very hard for me to go. And I thought, well, I'm going to come back and I'll take classes uh, you know, locally. And the instructor who was teaching it, the head instructor seemed like a great guy, a lot of talent, a lot of skill, very smart. But the person who was teaching me and two other people who signed up was just just someone who we still use to this day as an example as to what not to be if you're trying to lead other people. And... I quit there, and then our first real school was I opened up a fight club before fight clubs even existed at the bottom of the old YMCA. We called it the Dragon Master Fight Club. It was right aside of the Lebanon Boxing Club, and that's where it all began. Hmm. So, so I, I think what's really cool is to kind of trace through these events and see, well, first of all, going back to junior high school, to make the decision to want to... Um, make a change mm -hmm. in the circumstances you were dealing with was in itself a, a creative application. Uh, we, you know, through all, the, all of our research and our activity as artists and our interviewing people, one of the things that we really notice is uh, more and more, I, if I had to define creativity in its simplest terms, it would be the power to use your mind to change your reality. Like yeah, that's great. Yeah. Like that's that's kind of like and really what you did in all of these circumstances is they got exactly that. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with the circumstances in um, in junior high and, and just making the decision. You know what? I'm gonna 
make my own <laughs> workout gym, <laughs> which is creative. Uh, uh-huh. And, uh, you know, going and, you know, some people, if they got um, thrown around in a boxing match or something, they might just put their tail between their legs and go home. But you had the courage to go up to that guy and say, hey, what did you do? <laughs> and then, and then yeah. take it a step farther, you know, and take it a step farther and actually look into it. And then, of course, the biggest creative step is actually to say, you know what, I'm going to take what I learned and make my own school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, that was that was something too because a, a lot of people in today's generation, the, the, the '70s. If you looked at the '70s today and you lived in the '70s and and uh, you know prior to the '80s, the '70s and the '80s were totally two different eras, and the '70s were all about right or wrong, it was all about the machos. When you think of the heroes of the 70s, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and that's not as an actor, that's when he was Mr. Universe. And of course, you had your Robert Conrad, and you had Muhammad Ali, and and that's when boxing was the greatest title in the world. And every magazine you'd pick up, there'd be a, a thing from York Barbell, hey, you know, don't let people kick sand in your face, you know. It was all about that machoism thing. And that's the kind of uh, thing that you grew up with in the 70s. You know, you had your muscle cars and and things. Then the late seventies it began to change. But I mean, you got to remember in seventy three, this uh, little guy comes out. His name's Bruce, and he does some things that people just stood there and said, "Humans can't do that." I mean, to see what Bruce Lee did on film, like with Enter the Dragon and and Green Hornet. Today it's like, oh yeah, okay. But back then that was a shock. That was a shock. People never saw that kind of. If you think of the old westerns when John Wayne was slugging that out with somebody, that's what we grew up with in the sixties and into the early seventies. And then suddenly this Bruce Lee comes out, and the things he was doing was just it, it, it was dumbfounded. And shortly thereafter, then you had the Kung Fu TV series, so you had this big rush for martial arts at a time where I had to learn to defend myself. So it kind of all just fit in the you know, you know what I mean. It all kind of came together at the right time. Yeah. Now, did Bruce Lee's philosophy, his approach to martial arts, did that heavily influence you in, in developing your own martial arts school? No, because back then you didn't have a lot of anything from Bruce Lee other than Enter the Drag. You saw him in, uh, you know, playing Cato on uh, Hornet, and then you saw him in the Enter the Dragon. And the reality is, he was dead a month before Enter the Dragon ever hit the United States. And his whole ph- philosophical background wasn't really built up until after he had died. You know, everybody came and said, there's nothing like him. We can't believe he died. And well, these are the things he did. And he had a nice following in, in California with some movie stars and things. And they basically said, hey, he did, he did that. And then he started looking at the old films of him and everything. And he started bringing this character to life. And he was he was the real deal. You know, Kung Fu TV series made a lot of difference in like, my life because I was more involved in the philosophical aspects of watching that series you know, the master Poe and the grasshopper thing than the actual fight scenes, you know. And so you had those two kind of things both with each other at the same time. And then as the 70s began to end, everything was uh, starting to turn into that martial arts thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't long until you had the uh, the Ninja Turtles and Chuck Norris and all these things. Friday uh, Kid. Friday <laughs> Kid, yeah. All those things came, uh, you know, out 
kind of at the same time. And then you had a big push. Now it's before the video boom with these kids are sitting around like today playing on their videos. They didn't have those things back then. So uh, the parents in those days said, get out and do something. So martial arts was a major explosion just because it, it all came together at the right time. I think. Right. Makes sense. But when you look back, as a, as a direct answer to your question, when you look back at Bruce Lee and the things he did and his thought pattern, it, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because Bruce Lee launched the martial arts in America. There, there's no answers or buts about it. Without him, there was no martial arts. You know, uh, prior to that, you had a couple little things uh, that were here and there, but didn't have a lot of stuff. And everything that he technically believed in, and people found out that he believed in, is in a pretty big contrast to the way 90% of the martial arts schools were running in America after him. With all the rules and regulations, and this has to be perfect, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. And, and you come to that cloning of the instructor or the system Bruce Lee was all about self-development and building yourself with good concepts and taking what you do best and making it great and you know things that you don't do well build on those but still be your own character within your martial arts system yeah and I think that is just huge that that's that's the game changer there it's funny I want to mention <clears throat> I think it was yesterday I seen someone had you know took a photo of a karate school that had like one of those little signs set up outside their karate school. And it said, uh, it had Bruce Lee's quote, be like water, my friend, Bruce Lee. And then at the bottom it said, we love our karate students. And it was meant as, you know, to those in the end who know a little bit about all this are like, well, first of all, Bruce Lee didn't do karate. <laughs> and it was obviously, you know, kind of more of a, a kind of school marketing ploy that they were doing and they're sort of using him. So it was like ironic, kind of actually almost hypocrisy, hypocrisy yeah. that, they're, that they're using him to promote their school, even though they have really nothing to do with him. Just yeah. kind of to play on what you're saying, how Bruce Lee changed the martial arts world on its oh, head. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of karate schools, I mean, you almost have to do it with, with the cloning effect. If you have a mass amount of people, it's the only way to get to be able to reach a mass amount of people at one time is to have them kind of do the same thing. You couldn't run around and teach 30 people, 30 different things in the course of an hour and a half. You just wouldn't have the time. So if you, you got to remember that too, that, that when karate was formed and any martial art in particular, in fact, almost any sport, the person who formed it, they built that system around their true skills because they could have gotten to the top and been able to be superstars as a martial arts, say in, in China, you know, back in 1850, unless they could really defend themselves, but they're not, they developed these systems based around what they really, what, what they could really do naturally. And then they, they added to it. So that's why you have all these different systems, you know, now you turn around and you say, Oh my, my goodness, this, uh, uh, John Doe, look at him. He's amazing. I want to do what he does. And you start cloning what he does. It may be not, it may not be what you would do best. And you might be leaving your real talents on the sideline by trying to clone somebody else. And Bruce Lee saw that and said, no, you know, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to take you and we're going to look at what you can do and make you the best you can be under your own situation. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think that's, it's, it's harder to teach like we teach we, we can't do 35 40 people at one time you can't get the message across you know so the smaller groups you can spend more individual time with them to help them get from one point to another 
Whereas if you have 40, 50 people, you almost have to clone each other in order to, to, you know, get from point A to point B because there's just too many people to have the individual time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, That's I a think... long-winded explanation. <laughs> <laughs> no. That was interesting. But I think in that way, um, so for our listeners, um, those are our listeners who may not know, I have a little bit of a, um, a kinship with uh, Mr. Warfield here because I have actually been a part of this martial arts school for a while. And, uh, and one of the things that uh, I really appreciate is how you allow the students, um, especially at higher levels, to essentially create their own forms. Um, when it comes to weapons, it's like, here's your template, here's your blueprint, but, you know, make it work for you. Like, you know, follow these general guidelines, which are good for the sake of understanding which direction an attack is coming and how to defend against it. But from there, it's like, you know, do your, do what is appropriate for you. And I think that, um, that's a very, uh, liberating kind of application of the martial arts. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's, in, it's in every art form, you know, the, the Beatles came out and at the time when the Beatles were, were, were coming out, the, the, you know, the, the music they were listening to was, they added a version of rock and roll to existing music in the United States. And there was a different sound to it. And then once they came out and, you know, they managed to luckily get through it and become what they were, then you go from the Beatles to the, the, you know, the crickets and every other insect comes over here from England. And, you know, you, everybody starts trying to emulate them. But as we all know, there was only one Beatles. When Dr. J was zooming through the air, floating through the clouds, slamming basketballs, you know, there was no one else doing that. Now you have everybody trying to emulate that yeah uh you know people get to a pinnacle uh you know where they're just so great and rather than copy them learn from what they did and everything but build yourself there's only ever one of any and everything else is just cloning like in music you know if we go out there and we do uh like if we do plush well i can't be the lead singer from plush so i got to do it my own way as if you start trying to be the lead singer and copy every word that everybody said you might as well be doing karaoke know you're not mm-hmm. really developing something when you do your lead guitar plays I, you know obviously i've watched you really come to life with the guitar over the years and you know to watch you do renditions of different songs you're putting your own passion into those songs and if your passion is right and it sounds right and it, and it makes that song better mm-hmm. it's awesome but if you only ever played the notes and you know there's a lot of musicians like that out there or they have a hard time to create they can copy, but they have a hard time creating. You know, unfortunately, they'll never reach the pinnacle of what they can do because they've never really went within themselves to bring all that out. You know, and that's that's where you separate yourself and you go in your own direction, and that's how you get to the top. Because once you're there, then people want to copy you, and then somebody will pass that person and do something doing something else. It's kind of the way it works in life. You know, you, people create something, people try to copy it, and then somebody recreates it. You know, and it's the people who do the recreating or, or the, the initial people who start off and start something, they're the ones that usually get to the top. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Yeah, um, yeah that's actually what we were talking about in the, the last one we did on Facebook. Yeah, that... Um, talking about the evolution of art. I think, it's, I think it's a necessary element. Yeah. And honestly, in my own personal creative journey, that's kind of where I'm at with 
almost all of my things, you know, like with my artwork, I, I recognize that for the most part, I'm copying, like, I'm either copying from a reference photo, or I'm copying uh, from a general other sort of idea. But the next step is being able to break through and find my own style, like, do something that is uniquely me. And it's a very difficult thing. Um, and martial arts, oh my gosh, that's one of the hardest realms to really do that because there's so many critics out there that are like, oh, that's not exactly, that's not perfectly, you know, that the 18 Lohan uh, form of, or the, the exact uh, palm change in Bagua Zhang, you know, and there's a lot of... The beating that I took, I took such a, a, a beating, you know, in, in 1981 to 83, uh, because at that time, the established martial art was you were either from a traditional system or it just didn't count. It just didn't count. And the traditional systems, you really had it. Everybody had to be their things. Well, the first thing you, you ask yourself, like when I was at that one school, I'm watching there. There was like a, a guy. And at that time, there was a lot of women in martial arts. There wasn't even a lot of kids. Uh, you know, the, the majority of students back then were, were adult males like teenagers and above. But, you know, you're watching one guy and he's five foot two. And we talk about this a lot, you know, 125 soaking wet. And he's doing the exact same thing for self-defense. Someone who's six foot two, 240 is doing. Mm -hmm. And that technique might work for that six foot two guy. But there's no way that this five foot, you know, say five foot one guy, 125 pounds, there's no way he's stepping in. He's striking a, a football linebacker in, in the chest and knocking him down. It's just not going to happen. And I stood there and thought, well, I'm a boxer. If I fought like every other boxer, we'd all fight the same. Be like rocking soccer and robots. You have to find your own <laughs> niche, what makes you good, right? And and so, uh, you know, that was my first real question. I thought, when I, we open up the fight school, you know, I'm going to do it. Hey, whatever makes you great, that's what you run with. And I'll help you to get to the next level. But that was a big thing because we got beat up a lot by traditional places that said, well, it's just make-believe. You know, well, they're putting wrestling in there and, and they have takedowns and they have joint locks. And, you know, that's it's not traditional. What's that? And then we've all come to know since the MMA came around, it's, it's what works. And at the end of the day, it's what works that matters. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just that, that simple. And uh, it took a long time to get over that, that, uh, you know, whatever, however you want to classify it, you know, so people started saying, yeah, but you know, what they're doing, they're winning at tournaments. They're, they're doing these things. They look amazing what they're doing. It was simply because we allowed people to be themselves, kind of nurture their own real skill levels and personality. Plus I would argue that you had a very scientific um, application of martial arts like when you did what you did you're like uh, if you can beat someone up and knock them to the ground then it's working like you know you had a very uh, uh, that doesn't go over big today's world but back <laughs> in the 70s like I was saying that that was kind of important I guess. but you know when it comes to martial arts that is really important I mean you can't just if you want to learn dance go to a dance school if you want to learn martial arts it has yeah. to work and what you did yeah. was, you know, you created an environment where, um, and for our listeners who may not know, for throughout the 80s, uh, Warfield Martial Arts and the the Dragon Master Fight Club thing was 
kind of the place where everybody went to to get beat up <laughs> from this <laughs> from this uh, school and this teacher who wasn't really using anything traditional. So, you know, in a way, it was sort of a scientific application of, you know, let's, you know, the truth is in the in the pudding kind of thing. Like if it works, it 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 works, you know, and that's more important than just being under an illusion. Well, when people look at, at all the old schools back in the day, like that started the PKA Professional Karate Association, a lot of your schools came from Texas and it was rough and tough. In the martial arts in the 60s and in the, in the 70s, even into the mid 80s, it was a rough and tough thing. There, there wasn't, you know, it, you, you had to be tough because that's just what you did and your techniques had to work. Your sparring was, was physical. That all went away when um, lawsuits started becoming, you know, the everyday thing, ambulance chasers. Well, you know, Johnny broke his finger. Now we're going to sue you for $200,000. I mean, it's it got to a point where you really couldn't do those kinds of things. And, and looking back as an older man now, I mean, what I was learning in the martial arts then and what we did certainly would have been great for those times. But like, you know, times evolve and change and, you know, and I, and, and, we change artistically, you know, I'm more of flowing into the, the Tai Chi and the very practical self-defense and Tai Chi and conditioning and that kind of thing where someone like your age, you can still do that rough and tumble stuff, you know, but you tend to change as, as, as your life changes, you have to kind of flow with it. You know, you keep the same concepts, but you adapt them a little bit differently. The seventies was a rough and tumble time. And uh, we, had, we had fighters from all over Pennsylvania come in in that studio to, just to slug it out. And so, yeah, then, and, you know, that's where you go to, if you want to learn how to eat your children or something like that, the one guy said. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. It wasn't that bad, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you went in there, and it, it's a chance to showcase your style and what you were doing. And it was just, I think, ahead of its time. Uh, it, it got great reviews from the people who did it. It got bad reviews from the people who were, who were still continuing to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, then the funny thing about it is most martial arts schools, even the traditional schools, they have other systems that they teach in the schools to kind of push the self-defense aspect where we went in day one saying, we want to be the best self-defense people out there. I was a former boxer and I was bullied. When you're bullied, you learn a whole different mental set of ideas. Because it's not, it's about survival. Mm-hmm. And you learn to think differently than the other person does. Um, and so what happens is, and it just worked out well for our system, I was I was always blessed with very quick uh, twitch, twitch motors. You know, I was very fast. So when these bullies would grab me and stuff, I'd get away. I, was, I could block things and get out of there. I just couldn't do anything back. But I took a lot of those concepts and added them to the Kung Fu system and eventually to the Hopkeel system we were learning, saying, look, these things are all nice, but these work. You know, I often said, and, and you know, let's say you're being taught self-defense by a martial artist who, who is a very, you know, dedicated student. They're in great shape. They do all the right things. They lead a, lead a good, clean life, and they're a great role model. But they've never defended themselves ever in a real situation. And then the situation comes along. You know, wouldn't you really want to be trained by somebody who is in those situations and understands the emotional things that go on in the mind as much as the physical things that you can do. I think that was a big turning point for us too, because I think that, you know, I always came at things defensively first. Well, as you, you know, you also had uh, 
you worked as a bouncer for quite a long time too. So you have a lot of experience in physical confrontation there, which gave you real life experience yeah. to be able to apply to your martial arts school. Yeah, they used to where we had to st- when we had the studio there. The Lebanon Boxing Club was in the, the one side; we were in our side under the old YMCA. They used to have big blowouts on a Friday night, and they'd have hundreds of people in there. So they hired us to do the crowd control. And uh, again, you had in the real world, you got to use what works, and you have to try to understand that you don't answer everything with your hands and your feet. The idea is is to not to have to battle, you know. So there's a whole learning curve as to how, how do we not use our physical force to make things work rather than, hey, you know, you're out of control like the old roadhouse movie, you just grab somebody, throw them in the window. You know, <laughs> you just don't do that. Right. And, uh, you know, so that was a big thing, you know, learning that whole aspect as to how how can we discuss this and do it on a manageable reason, thing rather than having it be a brawl all the time. Yeah. So that, that comes into play in the training too because, like you said, those real-life situations are important, you know, they – they, they shed light on the reality of what you're doing more so than just the, the thought process, but what really happens. And as we all know, we talk about this a lot in class, you may never have to defend yourself. The people listening here may never have to defend yourself. You guys should go through life and, and nothing ever happens. But you fight a thousand battles a day in your mind over things. And that was something that we pushed early on uh, in, the, in the studio and said, let's get the mind where it's supposed to be. Let's win the battles in the mind first before we try to solve everything with our hands. So that's kind of was was the way that we programmed our studio to be. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it sounds like you your entire process and your forms and everything else is really involved. What is it? Um, what specific techniques do you use to spark your creativity? Well, you know, it's uh, it's kind of funny, you know, when when you're art, kind of when you're artistic oriented, doesn't everything kind of spark it? I mean, there's things <laughs> that some people walk down and they don't see anything, and I see something and think, wow, you know, and the, the creativity just goes off. Like when we wrote this one song, uh, you know, it actually was, it, there was a, a woman eating Twinkies in a car, and she was stuffed them in her mouth so she could actually get her hands in the wheel and she was chewing left to right and I was whistling this song and I was trying to write this one song and I thought her cheeks are shifting left to right, you know, and that was the words I used to create the song, which eventually, <laughs> which eventually turned into her hips were shifting left to right as she walked out to the dance floor, but it actually came from watching a, a woman at a, a, a Turkey Hill eating Twinkies. <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think anything can spark the idea if you allow it to do. And I, I think that, uh, you know, and you'll probably agree with this, in in today's environment, there just seems to be a push away from the artistic things. And it's people like yourself mm. that try to keep this alive. Uh, schools are dropping programs and everything. Yeah. And the idea is, as a kid's growing up, it always be the same. you got to, quote, unquote, fit in. And, uh, you know, you, you learn conformity and, and cloning at an early age in order to be in with the crowd. And I think that people just have to know that it's it's okay to think different. It's mm-hmm. okay to believe and to create. You know, 
why why can't a guy who's 50 years old go out and climb a tree? Well, because kids do that. Adults don't do that. You'll fall and you'll hurt yourself. Well, you'll fall and you'll hurt yourself because you stopped climbing trees when you were little. You yeah. know, it's like, it just depends on how you looked at it. But I think that the, the, the real spark you know, of, of my creativity is just, I watch other people and I see what they're doing and I think, what if? And I never limit it to what they can or can't do. You know, it's, what could this be rather than what it is, you know? Mm -hmm. So I kind of look at everything as a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely agree with that. I know as myself as a writer, it's very difficult for me to go anywhere and not somehow have a story playing out in my mind. And it's just, it's constant. So, yeah. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't stop. In fact, it probably takes over sometimes and you wish you could shut it down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's that. There's that. Especially if somebody interrupts me partway through and they're like, where did you go? Because <laughs> yeah. you just completely zoned out on us there. And I'm like, well, I don't know that I could backtrack enough to be able to explain where my brain is right now. So just give me a second and yeah. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, maybe. I really think that kids, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I just think that kids need to be allowed to be creative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's so many wonderful little minds out there. You know, we have a saying at the studio that there's 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 no dream too big and there's no dreamer too small. I, I think kids, you know, when, when you're born and you, you first begin to walk and things, you hear a lot of negative things mm-hmm. and you hear a lot of positive things, but it's no and don't and stop. And, you know, uh, because they don't want you to get hurt. Yeah. And, you know, and then as you as you get into your school grades, it's all well you have to sit here, you have to sit like this, you have to raise your hand to do this, you have to communicate like this. Now you have to learn to write like this. And you begin to kind of you know, you're you're like put in this program where you begin to clone a lot of different things in order to fit in and in order to be accepted and in order to get from point A to point B. You can't just go into school and do what you want, you'll never get from first to second grade. But um uh, you know, I, I think that along with that, they need to create or they need to keep the creative part of someone's life open. Mm-hmm. I, I tell a funny story about my son, Dane. Uh, he went to the to the Catholic school and he was in kindergarten. And I got a call one day from the uh, the nuns. They said, well, you need to come in. Here. We need to have a talk about your child. And I thought, oh, my God, what did he do now? And we went in after, after school and. We were there and the nuns came up and they took us back to his desk and he decided that he was going to carve. Don't ask me where he even got this because it probably makes me sound bad, but he carved into this desk, kiss my butt. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, where did you, where'd you hear that? I mean, are we we talking out of line at home or whatever? And so on. And I started kind of laughing. I started laughing a little bit and the nuns, the nun looked at me and then, you know, (laughs) The question was, well, why do you think this is funny? I said, I'm pretty impressed that he spelled butt with two T's. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that was the, uh, you know, that didn't go over very big with them, but I thought that was, he spelled butt with two T's. Give him a pat in the back for knowing that in kindergarten, you know. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I just think that kids need to have that ability to be creative and not be subjected to, so many you can't and do it this way and do it that way you know 
the creative person always like when he said the Beatles and Zeppelin and Ali and Martin Luther King and you can go down the list of the creative people are, are the ones that that change the world they really do mm-hmm. yep so on I know we've met on that note and you've also mentioned a few in the past who are your biggest inspirations in your different fields I think my biggest you know the, the person I admire more than anybody and I'm going to talk about people I never met. Uh, you know, it's easy to say family members and stuff, but when you're talking about in general, I think Martin Luther King is, is my all-time hero. I mean, there's a guy who stood up for something that was so tragically wrong, and he really, really, really tried to do it the right way. And he had a lot of opposition from people telling him to do it differently. He had, a lot of op- he had opposition everywhere, but he stuck, you know, to, to his way. I, I find that... Uh, you know, I find a lot of inspiration in that because when you run it, as you know, you're running a business now, you run into a lot of problems and you run into a lot of different things. The average person who goes to work nine to five, they don't know what the business person goes through. And when you talk a guy like Martin Luther King, there was a way of doing things and there's a way of doing business. He decided to do that business of converting America. And it was a business, a different way. And, uh, I admire, I admire him for that. And I admire people like that. I, I uh, you know, Muhammad Ali, there's a guy who definitely was, was, you know, as an African American to be able to talk to the general public the way he did was unheard of when he did it in the sixties. Mm. That was like, you know, you had so many people that hated him, but at the same time, you know, they appreciated him and, you know, his stance against Vietnam, I mean, Vietnam, you know, it, it's a 50, 50 split. You absolutely love and appreciate it everybody who went through those horrors over there but it was a it was a war we probably shouldn't have been in you know and it's tough to to pick and choose but my inspirations come more from people like that you know it's 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 people who or groups of people who make changes uh without necessarily screaming and yelling and carrying on you know i people like that don't inspire me um when you look at like a john lennon now that that's dating me but there's a guy who probably in his real life wasn't the man that he's made out to be. But the things that he spoke about, the things that he did, they were making a difference, you know, and it, it kind of woke a lot of people up to think about different things. So, you know, when I, when I look at people like that, I mean, I, I had a, uh, you know, a, a boss, uh, Mark uh, Mott's Miller. In fact, he's one of the, the guys at my book. He was one of the people in it. And, uh, he was the ultimate American, this guy. He had all kinds of sayings and stuff. But, you know, one of the things that he used to always kind of push on was the fact that if you're American first, everything else fits in. And it wasn't about being an American. It was about being for and with something. And those kinds of people inspire me. People that are going from point A to point B against odds. I'm not overly inspired. I don't know about you guys, but people who just wake up, they're born and they have everything. It falls in their plate. I'm inspired by the person who didn't have anything and made it to the top. You know, I, I think that, that those kinds of people are the ones that I find the most interesting. Because, you know, they overcame and they had to overcome. And you learn your lessons in overcoming, not just by winning, but how did you win? You know, what were you up against? What were your real odds? You know, I think that's important when I when I look at somebody and I want to admire them. Yeah, I mean, those figures, those figures dealt with... Uh... <clears throat> really 
an entire they were fighting nations <laughs> yeah they were their uh, yeah. opposition was in fighting not just a person or a group but a whole national collective you know yeah. kind of the status quo of this is a way everybody should think and believe and and they were like no we don't we disagree because it's uh it's not humane it's not fair and it's uh and they kind of stood up for the greater purpose, yep. even though everybody around them was, and the collective consciousness of the nation was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about? How dare you? <laughs> Don't mess with the status quo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next question is a tough one for some people. What, tell us a little bit about your experiences with creative rut. Like you get stuck and you Ruts. just, yeah, creative rut. So like writer's block, like, uh, you know, just yeah, getting stuck and not knowing how to go forward with something. Well, I think that a lot of times, it, and again, if you look at the different types of creativity, artistic, you know, music, art, performance, things like that, martial arts, uh, necessities, businesses, new interventions, advertising, survival you know building better weapons and mouse traps i mean all of them the, the ruts i think in, in my life come more from the idea that it's not a lack of idea it's a rut of how to make the idea actually a reality um you know as martial arts is an example you can come up with great programs that you want to do but if you can't find the people there to help you you find yourself in a rut because they're never going to move along Mm. And you find yourself trying to find ways to make these things happen. And the rut really is trying, try, like I said, trying to get something from the beginning and get it in place and get it moving. Because you know, life is tough by yourself. You need, need help doing things. Yeah. yeah. So in, in, in the martial arts, that's, that's where my rut really lies. Is just It's not necessarily the ideas. It's having the people help to implement them and get them into effect. I can I can actually personally attest to that aspect because a lot of times, especially well, actually since I've known Bannon, um, I'm often the test subject for his forms. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it helps. It's it's one thing to practice a form and say, okay, this is a block, this is a strike. They're going to be coming from this direction. This is how I'm going to be doing this and that and the other thing. Um, and, you know, but then he'll either have me do the strikes or me be, you know, the one receiving. And it helps him organize how he does the form yeah. because he has a physical body to beat up. So not that yeah. he ever actually hurts me, but, you know, it's always slow motion. <laughs> so, but. Uh, I think what you're saying yeah. is uh, it's actually different than it's a it's a new perspective that I don't think any of our other guests have touched on, which I think what you're saying is the rut is not, if you're in a collaborative type of creative effort, it's getting the other players that are necessary to move it forward is kind of what you're saying. Mm. So yeah. like, like let's say music. Um, so for our listeners who don't know, um, me and Mr. Warfield were also in a band together at one point. <laughs> and uh, and we had some good ideas and and um, 
and there again, you know, the band just kind of dissembled mostly because of uh, one of our members got a job promotion and, and had to move. But, um, but it's a good, it's actually a really good reflection that sometimes the mm -hmm. rut is you need all the right players to move your ideas forward. And, um, yeah, and it's a balance. One, one of a, uh, some people could argue it's about having the discipline and the focus to see the idea through as an individual. Like if you come up with an idea and you're like, okay, I really like this idea. This is where I want to take my creative direction. Then you have to stay focused on that and move it forward. No matter, even though it kind of sucks sometimes and it feels like it's not going anywhere, it's the focus and the determination to say, I'm going to keep moving this forward, whether it takes weeks, months, or a couple of years. Um, but sometimes you're at the mercy of other people, you know, that, yeah. and when that's the case, <laughs> you know, you, you got to find yeah. ways around it and maybe find new people to yeah. work with. Yeah. Ross Perot, when he was running for presidency, that might've been a little before your time, but he made a statement. He said, there's a lot of great ideas in Washington, but if no one ever does them, they're just ideas. And Lee Iacocca once said, one of my favorite quotes that I heard in my lifetime was he said, you know, he said, strip me down naked that I have no clothing on, drop me in the middle of a city, take all my money, all my, all my friends, take everything I own, take my name so nobody knows who I am, but leave me my three key people and I'll have everything back in three years. And I think that, that, and we're seeing this now in this, in this pandemic situation, we need other people. We need things. When we're isolated, it's hard to do anything. Because who are you doing it with? Whom are you doing it for? You know, mm -hmm. and like when you, you could have the greatest ideas in the world, but if, if you're stuck because of the financial aspect, you're stuck because of the time aspect, maybe it interferes with the relational aspect that you have, you end up in that rut where you want to move, but you can't seem to move. And then frustration comes in and you either, like you said, you're either pushed by your situation or pulled by your desires you tend to make that decision as to which way you're going to go. You give up, you put it on hold, or you push through, you know? And I think that there's so many different creative things in, in any individual's life that some things they push through and some things they, you know, that they end up saying at the end of their life or, or down the road, if I just would have only done this, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that rut, there's so many different ones out there. They're hard to get over. They really are. Mm -hmm. Creativity. The creativity was never really a, a rut for me. It was more of getting the ideas out of my mind and getting them into a working format. Yeah. So one thing we didn't touch on a whole lot, and um, this might be a good place to put it in, is with uh, your book that you wrote. And uh, yes, you know, you can talk a little bit about maybe what the creative ruts were, were for that, but um, just tell us a little bit about your book, what you wrote, and what it's about. Well, I wrote a book that was that was intended intend to be uh, a section of four different books. And I wanted to do something different than anyone else was doing. And I thought I'll, I'll write one book that is in one kind of a category and another one that's in another one. As an example, the one was going to be a kind of a modern day, someone coming back to reclaim what is theirs, uh, criminal type, sexual a lot of different things, but something that you'd actually go to a movie to see. 
and there was a religious compound to a different book and there was another book that had to do with with someone overcoming all kinds of odds and in the end all these four people from totally four different genres of things came together for the final book so it was an idea i had and it's still kind of sitting out there but i decided one day that i was actually physically going to write the book i sat down and i wrote it and there was a lot of obstacles it was a, it was a lot of fun uh, but there was a lot of obstacles and the obstacles weren't the book they were how are people going to look at the book it was more of a battle within myself as to what i should put in there yeah. and not put in you know you don't want to risk the character you know by being afraid to to put in there what you think makes that character at the same time you don't want to offend somebody either you know by putting things in you know at, at end of the day a book a novel it's it's a commodity that someone's going to buy so you have to have people wanting to buy it or well, if you write something that everybody hates no one's going to read it you know? <laughs> so there's kind of a, a lot of things goes goes into writing a book and for anybody who happens to be listening to this it ain't easy <laughs> it ain't easy uh but yeah the this particular book was about someone who uh left an imaginary town based on Lebanon they left went to Vegas did some crazy things and when life got out of control there, they decided they were going to come back and, and get back the person that they, they lost them, the, their girlfriend all through high school. And the person came back. Well, this person learned a lot of bad things in Vegas, and they decided to use this against her now husband to try to destroy their marriage. And that's kind of what the book was about. And uh, although it might sound simple, the ending, of course, you know, put a plug in. The ending is, is amazing the twists and turns at the end and I had the twists and turns at the end before I had the book so <laughs> that's kind of that's and I know you're laughing because you do the same thing you have an idea mm-hmm. but now you got to develop do. everything around that idea yeah and uh yeah you got to fill it in yeah how do you fill in the, the points there so it was a lot of fun and I used a lot of characters based on people that I knew uh you know that I that I put into the book and I used them as as my visual as I was writing the book. Uh, so yeah, it was a lot of fun and, and it was, um, it was very creative because filling in the blanks and trying to have someone want to turn the pages, it's not the easiest thing. Um, you know, you can have a good story, but if you can't get somebody to turn the pages or they don't, don't want to re pick the book up, it's basically going to die on the shelf. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, you, you need to have all those things kind of going together. Uh, so that was that was a tough part. And then I had a, an issue with Amazon and stuff like that where they, they printed the wrong book. And I guess I got the blame for that, but they, they printed the one book that wasn't edited. And oh, it no. had a few things in there I had taken out. And it had a lot of, not a lot, but it had some misspelled words and stuff like that. So that had all to be taken care of. But I got a lot of good reviews. It sold more copies than I thought I would, so... That's yeah, cool. it was. Uh, What's the title? Uh, it was called "Until the Fall." Okay. Uh, and it was, it's kind of based on the season, I guess you could say. It's not falling like falling down, but until mm. the fall would come. Uh, but I left it open to to the, the ending of it. Even I, I just had uh, somebody uh, send me a thing on the computer actually yesterday. True story. 
saying they just finally read the book and they can't believe that the ending, I did what I did to this person at the end. Well, maybe that's not the end. You know, <laughs> things are way coming around, you know. <laughs> so you but, might have uh, another book in the works. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I actually have one third of that. Well, not quite one third, about one fourth of it already written. And then when I got this new this new position at the job, I mean, it's just so demanding mm-hmm. mentally that I just haven't really. And then mm-hmm. reopening the new studio, everything kind of pushed the book off to the back. And and just, you know, I, I don't know how, how you guys are, but I think we all have a an end view of what we want to do when we finally grow up and how we <laughs> want to pass out, you know, our, our final days. And I, from the, when I was in seventh grade, I knew that what I really wanted to be in life was a novelist. I don't think a lot of seventh graders know that, but I knew. And uh, I wrote a, I went to the shore and something happened at the shore as a kid with my parents. And I wrote a book about this because my teacher said, everybody has to write a little short story, da, 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 da. So I wrote this short story and my, my teacher, Mrs. Gingrich, she said to me, she said, I want to talk to you after class. I went after class. She gave me an F. And I said, why did I get an F? She goes, well, you didn't write this. I said, yeah, I did. She goes, no, you didn't write this. You saw this someplace and then you, you just wrote a story out pretending. I said, no, I, I wrote that. And she didn't believe me. And, uh, I think that was kind of the thing that I thought, and I still have that book here. I thought, 7k thing and i uh i think that's what i really believe for the first time well i mean i could do this seventh grade and it was just always there Mm -hmm. so yep yeah that's cool yeah i've always i've always been a writer i've always told stories i don't think i actually wanted to be a novelist i just wanted to tell stories yeah it's just yeah telling stories is fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know uh, it, as you know, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot into it. There's a lot involved with writing. And again, I think the biggest part in, in my case was people will look at you differently when you write something and they may look at you like, are you that character or where did you come up with this? I mean, imagine Stephen King after you write the Boston clown running around his basements, killing kids and throwing a kid out in front of a truck and then he digging him up and he comes back. I mean, the Shining with the guy smashed, you know, through a door, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think mean, that I mean, was just influenced by a lot of drugs. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was, it's well known that he yeah. had a drug history and a, and a drinking, uh-huh. drinking. His, his later books, I don't know if you follow him or not, but his early books, when he was definitely influenced, um, were pretty horrific and graphic. And, you know, like I can remember... I loved reading his books when I was younger, but there were sections I would have to skip through <laughs> because I couldn't handle it. And now yeah. his books are far more philosophical and it's more of a psychological thriller, I would say. Yeah. Less Because his... he's growing up along with his, with his passion. He's mm-hmm. growing along and he's, and he's evolving. Yep. You know? Yeah. But yeah, I think that was... When people read some of the stuff, they, you know, they, they look at me a little differently like, do you think like that? You know, well, <laughs> but that's <laughs> like, also why authors use pseudonyms. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what? I was going to, and then I didn't. Because I, uh, I don't know. I just figured, well, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm a, uh, you know. But I thought about it because it, you know, when you're into martial arts, you are, of course, you know, looked at one way. And if you tell a story or write a story, that's not what you're, 
doing in the martial arts or in your personal life. It's just a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know that as, as a writer, you know that. But to a lot of readers, they can't, they can't uh, figure that out. You know, yeah. They think that Stephen King really is running around a clown suit. there's something to be said too though for uh the concept of just being yourself um and i think in terms of how that relates to creativity if if somebody's too busy worrying about what other people think that's Mm -hmm. just energy and time that you're you're burning yourself away yep uh you know one of my one of the figures that i think is one of the most creative beings that ever walked the earth was david bowie and that dude just didn't care what other people thought he just followed this whole um sort of uh archetype this whole uh alter ego multiple alter egos that he would create just to express ideas um but he wasn't trying to not be himself he just he didn't care what people thought and a lot of people that are very successful in creative endeavors they just do what they want to do yeah. mm-hmm. they're not scared about what other people are going to think because they're not them at the end of the day we have uh, to live I our know. own lives you know? <laughs> <laughs> well the, the character was actually made up of three people i knew you know one guy was a local guy that we grew up with who was just this charismatic uh you know woman woman guy you know and you know he he was just that guy and the other guy was a guy I worked with named Dave. He was the greatest salesman I ever met in my life. He unfortunately died early of a, a brain tumor. But I, I spent a lot of time with him. And watching the way he set up sales interviews and stuff, he knew how to get somebody to say yes before they even knew they were saying yes. And he showed me how he did it. I'm like, wow. I'll give you an example. If, if you talk in a paragraph, okay, and you, you skip the timing on certain words, the other person will hear those words more than they'll hear the whole paragraph. And he used to do this in his interviews. Like he'd say something as to, um, you know, I really want something maybe later. And what you hear is want something later. But believe this or not, sounds crazy. Depending on who's listening to that, that can be someone hitting on somebody even though they're going to be talking about getting a, a sandwich at the sandwich shop. It's the way that people hear things. And he told me about this. And I said, come on, Doug. I said that and his sales were through the roof. And he said, this is what I do. And he showed me when he's on the phone, he had a script where he'd have sentences that were broken in certain words. And he was just one out one. So after another, that's when my, one of my first jobs, it was selling uh, uh, stocks and bonds mutual funds. And uh, that's what he did. And the money he reeled in was amazing. And it was just his ability to to tell people to make a decision without them even knowing they were doing it. So I used that part of, of that character for the character that I created. Then there was another part to him. Well, then people think that, well, you're doing that. Well, no, I don't do that. I don't have that, that knowledge. But these people did. So when you create somebody else, you can make superheroes or you can make demons or whatever you want. <laughs> you know, because you're putting a lot of different people into them. Yes. That's kind of how the lead character came up. And uh, I, I think you see a lot of that in, in writing when they're developing characters. They're bringing two, three different people together in one. So. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So what would be um, your current challenge that you're dealing with now 
that either you have figured out or you don't have figured out that you realize you need to use creativity to solve. And it could be multiple areas, but what's the biggest thing? One that just keeps going to my mind and discusses a bit, uh, Kintsugi. When I was when I was training years and years and years ago, when uh, Danny the Spider Rodriguez first came into Lebanon, and we were training together, he said something to me that kind of stuck with me over the years. He said, "You know, we were we, I was like a year older than him, or two years older than him, and we were just young in our mid twenties or whatever. And we were talking about one day we're not going to be able to do this." And he said, "He said, well, you know when that day's going to be?" And I said, "Well, no, I really don't." And he said. The day you wake up and realize that the guy you are now couldn't take the guy you were yesterday. And you start thinking about that as you go into martial arts. Remember, back in the 70s, it was all about the fighting aspects and self-defense and stuff. And You know, I've come to realize that the guy I am now at my age couldn't handle the guy I was 15 years ago. I, I, he, would, he would eat me alive. And so... The idea of kintsugi is to take something that's, in layman's terms, to take something that's broken and mend it back together to make it more beautiful than it was before because it now has extra meaning to it. And so the whole idea of the new studio is to take something that we did in the 80s, uh, you know, the 80s and the early 90s, which became a broken pot over the years. And now mend that back together to make it uh, more valuable than it once was. Mm. And that's kind of putting that mm. together in in the new studio and having people like yourself and other people involved in that project and that passion. It's my passion. I have to be able to use creativity to get other people involved in that to make that something that, that the legacy is not going to be for me. It's going to be for all the students that went through that studio. Yeah. And, and the take it when I'm not there. And for our our listeners, I encourage you to actually look up uh, Kintsugi, um, Google it, and look at some of the artwork that actually represents this idea because oftentimes in uh, Asian, you see a lot in pottery where they will take a broken piece of pottery and actually use gold or silver or some other kind of precious metal and mend those parts together. and they purposely make that gold or silver uh, noticeable. Like they're not trying to hide the, the, the fracture. They're not trying to hide that it was once broken. And they use that to kind of say this is sort of the, the uh, representation of the life of this piece of art. And also that, also that concept is noticeable in even paintings um, and other forms of art in Asian culture where they would purposely make a defect in the artwork to say that nothing is perfect and that's part of life. And mm-hmm. it's a really cool philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It really is. And about three, four months ago, you didn't notice this. You were actually there that night. Uh, well, maybe you noticed it just didn't say anything. I actually stumbled doing a self-defense technique that I've done a thousand times. And I actually stumbled. And I was like, it, it, it struck me. It was like somebody took something and, and slapped me alongside the head. It's like, oh my god, how did that just happen? You know that I, I look so uncoordinated and just so, you know, in my mind, like like 
a pathetic thought came across. Oh my God, you know, what just happened there? And this whole idea you're talking about is, is, is rebuilding that, you know, I'm going to be moving into another era of my life that isn't going to be based on, you know, what I can do necessarily with my hands and my feet. Hopefully I'll always be able to defend myself, but you know, moving along with other people my age that see themselves, you know how it is. A lot of people, when you hit 40, you know, like women have children and you've raised your kids and you've taken times off and men, you know, they sit around watching football and drinking beer and stuff like that. And you wake up one day and you're not the person you used to be. That doesn't mean you're a broken piece of pottery that should be shoved off into a box. Let's look at, you're still here, which means you've overcome a lot to even be on this planet today. A person has overcome a lot. If you're 40 years old, you know, you've been here 15, 16,000, whatever the multiples are, but you've been here a lot of days <laughs> and you've overcome a lot of things. And I think that this whole idea of, hey, this is where we're at now. We're restarting ourselves. We're going to look at ourselves as we have to mend ourselves to be better than we were yesterday. But let's take out whatever time we have left on this planet and, and make it the best that we can do. And that's for this you know, a whole idea, this just Japanese pottery came into mind when I saw it one time. I thought, wow, that was impressive to me. It bored everybody else that it was with me watching it, but I thought it was impressive. You know, I thought, wow, that's really cool. Because artistically, you see the whole relationship that you could bring from that into, some, into your life rather than just a broken pot somebody's gluing back together, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that that's my biggest thing right now is trying to figure out a way how myself, you know, and again, like we talked about earlier, you need other people to help you to get wherever you're going and take something and move it from here to here. You know, it, it's, it's not like getting up and saying, I'm going for a walk today. It's like getting up and saying, I'm moving and I'm hopefully moving all these people with me to this next place. That's a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of things that can stop that. You know, building your business, you're in the same way. You have these great ideas and people win there. And, and you know, you're giving them like much like the Kung Fu class. You're giving them a guide as to how to do things, but you're letting them be creative. And when they walk out of there, that's their picture. It's yeah. not a copy of your picture. God knows my guitar I painted with you. didn't look like your guitar. <laughs> <laughs> They got two strings, but you know. <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> but the the idea is just to, that's that's where I'm moving. That's my biggest thing that I have to move is creativity. How do I motivate other people, you know, to want to help change themselves? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's great. I I really like. I'm looking forward to uh, finding ways that we can implement that idea into what we do. Yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. So is there anything else you want to add? Anything you think we might need to... No, I just want to say on, on, a, on a personal note, I mean, you know, just knowing you guys since I've, I've known you and the way that you're rebuilding your whole self, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, different backgrounds and the artistic flow, and mending it together and pushing from point A to point B. And I know because I've been on this side, how tough that really is. You know, and to get up every day and do things, you know, just think of how many people actually would have what it takes to get up and do a podcast like you just, not a lot of people out there that would do that, you know, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I mean, yeah, you should be proud of yourself and you've done Thank a you. lot over the last couple of years, so, Thanks. no, I, I appreciate you and I hope that uh, anybody listening has some, get some good thoughts out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the time. Yeah. yeah and uh, for our listeners, um, 
If you happen to be in the tri-state area, Warfield Martial Arts is located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Um, it's on Weidman Street, um, so you can come check it out. It's a collection of uh, uh, Chinese martial arts and practical self-defense, Taiji, and uh, we're looking forward to a new program that implements a lot more philosophy with this Kingsu idea about recognizing that your whole life, no matter of the ups and downs, is a part of who you are and trying to accept that and work it into your training and your philosophy. And in addition to that, um, you can find uh, Tim Warfield's book on Amazon. Is it still on Amazon? Yeah. Until the fall. So you can check out Amazon uh, until the fall. And Tim Warfield can be found on Facebook. Uh, or uh, what? do you have any other contact information? What's your email? Uh, cjoewarfield1 at gmail.com. Okay, so S-I-J-O, the number one at Gmail. I'm sorry, S-I-J-O, then my last name, Warfield, W-A-R-F-I-E-L-D, the number one at gmail.com. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. So. Yep. So or you can, even, just click it. you can even call, what's your phone number? Uh, 717-376-8394. Yep, so if you have any questions about if you're having trouble finding ways to purchase his book or get involved in the martial arts studio, or if you need a mortgage uh, <laughs> advisor, <laughs> I'm sure he can, <laughs> he can help you out with that too. <laughs> and uh, oh, what a conglomeratory writing and words. Or if you're band looking for a singer too, there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, we'll cover all the bases. <laughs> so thanks for being with us, Tim. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you guys for, for having me. And yeah, thank thanks. you listeners for uh, tuning in and uh, take care and be safe during the quarantine. Yep. Take care. <laughs>